You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Ed Harrison here for Real Vision. I'm talking to Michael Howe, who is the managing director of Cross Border Capital. We've talked to uh, each other before, Michael. Welcome back to Real Vision. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Good to be here. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of things to talk about. We were just discussing off camera about how to even frame this whole uh, discussion. I, I want to frame it using your framework because it's a really good one with regard to the debt liquidity spiral. Uh, you were talking about uh, financial markets spinning around a fragile debt liquidity axis. I think that's a, a good turn of phrase. Talk to me about uh, that and uh, how liquidity, global liquidity, is so important right now. Okay, liquidity is the main thing we look at. I mean, that's what I've, I've researched for the last 30 years. Uh, it's a critical component in markets, and it's really what's driving markets this year. What you've seen is an awesome increase in liquidity, uh, courtesy of the central banks. Uh, global liquidity is likely to be uh, up by about $20 trillion this year, which is about a quarter of world GDP. That's just the increase. I mean, these, these are big, big numbers. Central banks have plowed in about $6 trillion so far. They've increased their balance sheets by about a third. So that, that sort of frames what's been going on. If you look at the, the backdrop, I mean, this is one of the best backdrops I've seen in, in 30 years of being in the markets. It doesn't really get much better than this. There is lots and lots of cash around. And basically, investors are not particularly uh, speculatively positioned yet. They've still got comparatively low exposure to equities. Equities are becoming a scarce asset, certainly relative to the huge amounts of liquidity and, of course, uh, government debt that is being plowed in by policymakers. Yeah, I mean, that that is definitely a very uh, crucial point at, right now. However, uh, you know, to, to go back to the whole fragile debt liquidity access part, uh, that's that's the forward looking thing that I'm thinking about. I mean, it sounds to me like the liquidity, the global liquidity is preventing uh, fragility. And that is what's buoying markets as, as we speak. Yeah, there's no question about that. I mean, effectively, liquidity is papering over the cracks. And the whole point about liquidity and debt is that it's a spiral. And every turn of the spiral raises credit risk. And what you have is a situation where basically uh, liquidity needs debt because liquidity growth is increasingly dealer driven and it's dependent on collateral. And debt is a wonderful collateral until it isn't. And then equally, if you look at debt, it needs liquidity because the whole point about debt, which people forget, is that it needs to be rolled over. Debt, you don't just issue debt and go away. You've got to keep refinancing it. And the problem that policymakers haven't really got, uh, maybe until recently, is that the huge piles of debt that we've got not only have to be paid back, ha-ha, but they've actually got to be refinanced more immediately uh, over probably a five-year duration horizon. And that's the problem. And you need liquidity. You need balance sheet to do that. And every liquidity crisis that we've seen uh, over the last decade or so has basically been an interruption to that refinancing process. Consequently, central banks have had to come in and inject more liquidity to facilitate the rollovers. And that's the problem. It's going to get worse as we go as we go forward. And the two paramount issues that are kind of on the horizon, 
which actually disturbs this whole debt liquidity uh, axis and makes it even more fragile. And number one, uh, the fact that savings ratios globally are going to start to crater because of uh, the baby bust and there was the end of the baby boom. And what you're going to get is investors going from peak savings years towards periods of consumption, higher consumption as they get into their retirements, which is a key factor. And secondly, the risk that inflation is going to pick up. And the reason I say inflation is going to pick up is you've got two drivers now of rising inflation. One is higher costs, which are likely coming because of this decoupling from China that must be raising costs. And secondly, you've got a monetary inflation, which is coming through because central banks are basically trashing the value of money. And these are two factors which are likely to put upward pressure on rates uh, over the coming um, five to 10 years. You know, uh, you have a, a chart on that that I find very illuminating. Uh, you know, you look at all wealth, including gold and housing and global liquidity, uh, and they track relatively well together. And the part that I find interesting uh, is the last part of the, the chart, which shows global liquidity just going through the roof relative to uh, the the wealth number, which would suggest that there's more upside to come because of this liquidity-driven rally. Uh, so we've had this rally in 2020. What about 2021, given that chart? Okay, well, if you look at the chart, so that's basically global liquidity uh, expressed relative to annual gains in world asset prices. That's a long history. That goes right back to the very early 1980s. And the correlation between the two series is, uh, is remarkably close. Now, what we've looked at in terms of wealth here is a very broad measure. So it looks at all financial assets. It looks at equities. It looks at, uh, at fixed income. It looks at liquid assets. It also includes housing worldwide, housing prices. It includes precious metals too. But the correlation is very close. But as you rightly said, What's going on right now is you've seen this jump in liquidity. So liquidity is up uh, 15% or so this year, uh, at least. And you're looking at overall wealth, uh, financial and real wealth, uh, is probably up about 5 or 6%. Now, OK, the, the Biden boom, if you like, what we just had after the election, has added a couple of percentage points to that. But we're still lagging, uh, or asset prices are still lagging behind that rising global liquidity. There's further gains out there. Uh, what's going to happen next year when you get even more liquidity, uh, you're going to get further gains across uh, the spectrum of wealth assets. Uh, house prices are going to go up more. Uh, equity markets are going to go up. I'm not making judgments about bonds. because We don't like bonds. But effectively, equities and uh, real estate are going to be leaders. Uh, things like gold and Bitcoin are going to be probably stellar assets too. These are the sort of things you want to have in a portfolio. And the fact is that uh, with with uh, fiscal spending slated to uh, increase by probably another 10 trillion next year, you're likely to have something like four to five trillion of increase in central bank balance sheets alone, which could add up to another 20 trillion dollars of global liquidity. So we're still there. The liquidity pump is still pumping up for now. You know- you know, you know, as we uh, talk now, we, we're just on the back of this rally that you were talking about, the uh, the, the Biden rally. And, uh, you know, Americans, they have a very sort of American focused view. But when you talk about liquidity, you're talking about global liquidity. I, when you mention the um, the numbers, 
it was clear that you were talking about fiscal spending uh, on a global scale. Uh, talk to me about the difference between uh, what you know, an American might say, okay, this is what, these are the constraints for the Federal Reserve, and what's actually driving asset prices in terms of global liquidity. Okay, well, what, what you've got to take into account is, is there's a world out there. So we've got to look at global dimensions, and that will include Europe, uh, it will include the US, it will include Japan, and of course it includes China. Uh, China has been the biggest source of liquidity uh, globally since the GFC. Admittedly, this year has not really been that story. It's been much more a US and a European phenomenon. But actually, up from 2009 onwards, China has been the main driver of global liquidity. Now, all money that is uh, that is out there must be somewhere. It must be it must be vested somewhere. It's either going to real economies or it's going into asset prices. Those asset prices may be local asset prices in China uh, or in Europe, or they may be global asset prices, which include U.S. assets too. Global liquidity is a global phenomenon. Money moves around the world. It moves around rapidly, and that's what we've been seeing for much of the last two to three decades. Right. And, you know, when you talked earlier, you were talking about that link between liquidity and debt. And you have a great chart on that showing, uh, you know, the increase in liquidity and actually an a lar even larger increase in global debt uh, associated with that. Uh, walk us through, in terms of your framework, why that matters, especially with regard to the need to increase liquidity to keep uh, the financial system in place to the degree that you have this rollover in debt. Okay. The the, what, this, what this is looking at is what we call the debt liquidity spiral. And what you've seen really since the GFC, the global financial crisis, is something like 400% increases in the total amount of debt outstanding in the world economy. So that's government and private sector, including household and corporate, and a similar 400% increase in global liquidity. The two have matched together. They, they've essentially uh, spiraled up, uh, inflated at the same speed. If you look at GDP growth, uh, GDP has only increased by or has increased by less than 200 percent over that period. So actually what you're what you're looking at is uh, is a financial boom that is still inflating. Now, the issue is that why is debt going up? Debt is going up principally for two reasons. They're not necessarily good reasons. One is that interest rates have been kept artificially low. Uh, that encourages debt. What policymakers have done have made a huge, huge error here. They basically panicked when inflation started to come down, even though the inflation drop that we saw uh, through the 2000s was basically what you'd call a good inflation. It was because costs were coming down. If it's a monetary inflation, you need to distinguish these two dimensions, a cost inflation from a monetary inflation. What we've had is basically falling cost inflation, actually ultimately deflation in costs. And that's because of technology. It's because of demographics. It's because of China. All these factors have effectively kept costs in place. What was happening towards the end of that decade was that monetary inflation was picking up uh, alongside the cost inflation that was coming down. So the net of the net was that US high street inflation, high street prices were barely changing. There was two offsetting factors. Now, policymakers panicked and they basically saw this drop in high street inflation and thought, this is a serious problem. We cannot afford to have deflation. Think of the statements that Bernanke was making uh, at the time. The problem was that that was the wrong judgment. That was It was a monetary inflation allied with a cost deflation. What central bankers should have done at the time was actually raised interest rates. And if there was a problem about debt, fin debt refinancing, then expand liquidity by all means. 
But the very fact of dropping interest rates is an incentive to take on more debt. Hence, that occurred. Now, the second error that was made was the fact that if you start to then operate austerity policies in government, what happens? By the simple flow of funds arithmetic, you're forcing the private sector more and more into debt. So you've got low interest rates to incentivize them, and you've got a need to take on more debt. So needless to say, what you saw was debt spiraling. Now, as debt spirals, you need to refinance the debt. This is not a one-off operation. You've got to keep rolling your debt, and you need balance sheet to roll the debt. Hence, you need liquidity, and hence you then force central banks to come in with QE to paper over the cracks in the system. And that's the problem. Each twist of the debt liquidity spiral hikes credit risk, and it necessitates more central bank activity. The problem we've got now is that central banks are operating in an environment where effectively, number one, the cost deflationary pressures of the last decade are now ebbing, and you're starting to see increases in cost in costs coming through from a China decoupling, uh, maybe because a lot of technology uh, innovation is spent, uh, and thirdly, because uh, you've got this uh, you know, decoupling from China and demographic pressures, et cetera, which are forcing costs up. On top, you've got the monetary inflation spillover. Basically, if you go back to the 70s, inflation began through shortages. Take a look, if you like, at the US ISM, that's the Purchasing Managers Index, and look at the prices paid question on that. And you'll see how much that's elevated in the last few months. It's basically beginning to reflect some shortages coming through. And that would say that inflation is going to be more of a bogey next year than many people think. If inflation is a bogey, you do not want to be anywhere near the fixed income markets. You want to be looking at equity markets and you want to be thinking more seriously about assets like gold or Bitcoin. And our view is that the gold price relative to this debt pool should be nearer 2500 bucks an ounce, which would basically put Bitcoin somewhere nearer 25000 per unit. Uh, and that's the sort of parameters you should be thinking of. Interesting. You know, because uh, as you say that, I was thinking to myself about real yields and gold and Bitcoin uh, in the sense that to the degree that the Fed and other central banks are, are loath to raise interest rates, real interest rates effectively become more and more negative in that scenario, which makes gold uh, a very interesting uh, uh, proposition. A lot of people would also say Bitcoin as well. When you think of gold and Bitcoin separate from equities, but let's just focus in on those two asset classes. What are your thoughts about each in this scenario that you're painting? Well, let, let me start with gold. Uh, gold basically, it, well, how do you value gold? I suppose is the critical question. The way that we value gold is essentially as a monetary asset. And what you've got to look at is the relationship between gold and liquidity over the long term. Now, if you do that, what you find is the correlation or the trend correlation has been very, very close. And if you extrapolate the sort of growth rates in liquidity uh, that we're seeing right now into 2021, it would suggest that the gold market should be valued at somewhere nearer $2,500 an ounce. And that's how we get to that, that, to that number. Essentially, it's looking at the relationship between gold and liquidity. The second thing is, let's look at Bitcoin. Now, interestingly, if you look at how Bitcoin and gold have traded, so in other words, take, for example, the simple ratio between Bitcoin and gold, what you see is that there seems to be an equilibrium being traced out. In other words, the multiple seems to be uh, converging at around about six times or there or thereabouts. But it has a range. 
and that range can go as high as 10 times. Now, if you look at what drives that relationship and why it goes from an average of six to a peak of 10, it tends to be risk appetite, risk-seeking behavior for investors. And if you start to see risk appetite increasing, investors tend to uh, move more into Bitcoin than into gold. So in other words, if we're into a pro-cyclical risk environment, which should be the case, given the fact that economies are recovering and because there's lots of liquidity around, investors want to take more risk, then you'll likely see some overshoot, in other words, in Bitcoin in the next 12 months. So I'd fully expect Bitcoin to hit 2,500 bucks uh, per coin. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Very good. That, that's a big call. Maybe that's the shout out for, in terms of the clip for this particular episode, in fact. Um, uh, let me get back to something because you mentioned China, I would say, multiple times in, in the uh, so far in the conversation. And I saw a an interesting figure in one of your latest uh, pieces. Uh, it was showing U.S. and European CapEx as a percentage of uh, the world total from 1980 to 2020. And you see, I would say, from a about 2002, just an absolute, uh, cr you know, cratering of U.S. and European capex as a as a percentage of, of the world's capex. And my belief is that China is probably underneath that. W what's the the story going forward with this decoupling, given that chart? Well, I mean, that's that's the reason why we have to decouple, or why the U.S. has to decouple. And I think the thing is that in this, uh, you know, what's been lost sight of uh, over the last 20 years is the easy ride that China has got. Now, you know, I've not been in the camp that suggests that China is about to fall off a cliff or the financial system is going to implode. The system is not set up like that. Uh, Chinese banks have got a pretty stable liability background, so they're not going to go bust immediately. OK, uh, the fact is that China looks very much, although I you know, uh, hesitate to say this quickly, like the Soviet Union. OK, it's an economy like that. The Chinese won't like me saying that, but that's effectively what's happening. Now, if you look back, uh, go back to 1980. Right. In 1980, when I was studying uh, Soviet economies at university, OK, one of the things that was clear was that most academic experts were projecting uh, that the Soviet future was fantastic in 1980. The right. US was on top of the, uh, they, sorry, the Soviet Union was on top of the US, okay? They, everyone thought the Soviets were gonna overtake. What a joke. Look forward 20 years, the Soviet Union didn't even exist, okay? So this is how quickly things can ebb and flow. And so what we're looking at now is China. Everyone thinks China is gonna be the great success story. 20 years out, it may be a completely different story. And the fact is that planned economies uh, can work, okay? Uh, it's like, uh, you know, it's like producing sausages. Uh, you can put a lot of meat into the hopper. You can create a lot of very low quality sausages, but ultimately you're not, you're not uh, driving productivity forward. And the fact is that it's very difficult for these economies to innovate and basically move outside of uh, very set lines of production. So as soon as the Soviet Union started to move towards consumer goods, the whole thing collapsed, the wheels came off. And China has really got that same problem. China is in a bind because China needs technology uh, and it needs to open up its financial system. It needs savings. 
And that's the problem that China's got. It needs to internationalize fast. And they've got a very narrowing window because their demographics look really bad. Now, the issue is that if you start to look at all this in context, China needs America much, much more than America needs China. And never forget that. China needs to import goods, okay? It cannot protect its supply lines. The US is in a unique situation worldwide for a whole host of reasons. The US has technology and better technology than China. The US has better demographics than most other countries, even probably on a par or similar to India, okay? The US has supply lines which don't need maritime uh, support. In other words, you've got NAFTA or the new thing, which is uh, uh, the USMCA, which basically means supply chain can go right across the continent without involving shipping, shipping lines. China cannot do that. China is dependent on shipping lines, which means it's dependent on US support. Okay, all these factors are coming in. And, you know, ultimately, uh, China needs the US. Now, if you come back to uh, this whole question about will China survive and what will China do now? Basically, what China is doing is trying to uh, increase economic activity by essentially propelling uh, credit growth faster for 2021. You'll see the Chinese economy picking up. But also what they want to do is to maintain the value of the yuan against the US dollar. So if you look at Asian currencies, just take a look uh, at a basket of Asian currencies and look what's happening. There is a remarkable stability going on across the Asian axis. In other words, everyone is sort of moving towards a sort of China fix, if you like, uh, which kind of makes sense because they're in that in that orbit. But they're not moving into the US dollar. So what that means is that if the US devalues in the next 12, 18 months, what is the dollar going to devalue against? It's not going to devalue against Asian currencies because they're pegging themselves as much as they can against the US dollar. Even the yen, I mean, the, I've never seen the yen so stable in this environment. Uh, but then, as we know, so is the yuan. If the dollar devalues, gold is going to go up significantly, Bitcoin is going to go up, and the euro is going to go up. Now, that is a serious challenge for the euro area. The euro area is a deflationary area. We know that. But they don't have the same ability as the Federal Reserve or the People's Bank of China or the Bank of Japan to control their currency, I would venture. So it's very difficult to hold the euro down. And that's the problem that we face or they face in 2021. Yeah, there are a lot of avenues that we can shoot off from there. Two that I'm thinking about are regional deepening when you talk about the Asian fix. And uh, don't let me forget that. I, I want to come back to that concept. But I, it just occurred to me this whole uh, conversation uh, uh, this uh, I sent you a thread from Hugh Hendry on negative interest rates, and you know what my thinking is. This this European U.S. thing uh, makes me think about U.S. negative interest rates, in to the degree that everyone's gone negative uh, except for the U.S. and you know certain other Anglo-Saxon economies. All of the Europeans have. Japan's gone negative. The U.S. Uh, if you talk about the U.S. depreciating, that's a surefire way to get the U.S dollar to depreciate is to also turn to the negative interest rate policy. Uh, how much uh, is it really a quantity game in terms of quantitative easing versus a rate game in terms of where the the FX market is going? Okay, it's it's 100% a quantity game. That's, that's my take. If you look at the negative interest rate question, negative interest rates are the craziest idea central banks have ever thought up. Uh, it's it's ridiculous. 
and let me let me go into the reasons why that is. The first thing is that what you are operating in 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 that way is a topsy turvy world. It's an Alice in Wonderland world where everything is in reverse. So effectively, what you're doing is you're not uh, you're not borrowing short and lending long. You're effectively borrowing long and lending short. Okay, you're penalising the banks. Uh, you know, banks have been persuaded under Basel III to build up these huge cash reserves, and now you're going to start penalising by actually putting negative interest rates on. So if you create uh, a bad profitability outlook for the banks, why are they going to lend? So th this is nonsensical. Okay, There has never been any example of any country that's got negative interest rates where it's had a positive outcome. Okay, It's, it's a seriously bad idea. And if it's been spoken about, well, I don't think it's been seriously spoken about in the US, it's been talked about in the UK, but this is a crazy, crazy idea of mad people. What you've got to think about is that what drives currencies and what drives economies generally are quantities of liquidity. And that's really the key thing. Now, if you take the US dollar, and let's let's think about the dollar in context, you've got two functions really for the for the dollar. One is a trade competitiveness issue, okay, and the other is is the dollar going to be used as the standard of value in the world economy? And effectively they're kind of different issues, okay. If you're sitting in the US or in Washington and you want the dollar to be the dominant currency worldwide, which is clearly uh, a great aim to have, that's what the US should be thinking about. What they want to do is to make more people use the dollar, okay? So increase the supply, as simple as that. And if you increase the supply, provided you don't trash the dollar, you increase the supply, more and more people are going to use it. Already the dollar is the dominant uh, you know, standard of value worldwide, but it would be important to knock out competitors. And the easiest way to knock out competitors is to increase the supply of dollars so you devalue the dollar to some extent and you put upward pressure on the euro or on the yuan. They're trade-orientated economies. They just couldn't stand that. So the obvious strategy for the US is to start increasing the supply of dollars. Uh, and that it's really as straightforward as that. Then what you'll get is as that starts to increase and these other countries look more vulnerable, then you'll get big demand for U.S. safe assets coming in. But you've got to, you know, you've got to have the chicken, if you like, before the egg or the egg before the chicken, whichever way it goes around. But you've got to get the dollar used much more in the world economy first. Right. You know, um, uh, it reminds me of the uh, a chart that you have uh, on equity holdings to safe assets. You know, uh, the developed markets, fixed income plus central bank money across yeah. the world. Um what is that chart saying in, in context of, of this conversation? Okay, well, let, let me just take one step back and let's say, how do we value, uh, from a macro standpoint, different asset classes? And what we're doing is we're not looking at P's and aggregates, so we don't look at the uh, the P multiple of Wall Street versus the European markets or Japan or whatever. That's never worked for me. I mean, I'm, it works at the stock level. You can compare equities that way, but you can't you can't compare markets. Why not? Because basically the cultural backgrounds of these countries are different. Their demands for liabilities to match liabilities are very different. And it all depends on their demographic background, their tax background, and their expected inflation backgrounds. All these things will differ. So the asset mix of diff different countries is going to vary. And because of that, the ratings of equities or the ratings of bonds will alter according to the environment you're in. So what you've got to do is you've got to look at asset allocation. Uh, you know, effectively from uh, from a liability standpoint, the demand for uh, assets to meet liabilities. So what we do is that we look at the supplies of assets. So we effectively look at the total value of equity holdings 
first of all, compared to safe assets. Mm-hmm. Now, safe assets are fixed income and let's say central bank money or fixed income in the developed markets and central bank money. If you look at that ratio, what do you find? It is remarkably stable over decades. Okay, There's a long run average of about 0.7. So that's equities holdings to all safe assets, 0.7. It's currently at around about 0.75. Okay, So it's a tad above. The peaks were in uh, 2000 Y2K when it peaked at over one times. And again, just before the global financial crisis, when it peaked at about one, what about 1.05 times thereabouts. Prospectively, looking into the end of 2021, that ratio drops right down to about 0.65. So it's one of the lowest readings we've got, uh, you know, over that period. So equities are a scarce asset. If you do exactly the same analysis for uh, world equity holdings relative to global liquidity, much simpler ratio, you find exactly the same background. There is no evidence in any of these charts of an asset bubble in equities at all. There was in year 2000, there was ahead of Y2K, but there is not now. And what about the non-US equity holdings uh, compared to global liquidity? Even cheaper. I mean, these things look, uh, you know, a steal. Uh, so what you've got is you've basically got uh, a ratio prospectively uh, going out to the end of 2021 of about 0.3 times. The long term average for the world has been near about 0.45. So, you know, look at that ratio of uh, non-equity holdings to non-US liquidity worldwide. If that's the right ratio, you've again got stability. You've got a mean reverting series. And it would suggest that there's some great opportunities in global equities. And as soon as you get a sniff of inflation, you watch bondholders start to get rid of their bonds. Uh, yields have got to spike higher. And I think, you know, one of the things to, you know, to think about is why are bond yields, I mean, they're rising as we speak now, but why are they, why are they so low? We, you know, we do analyses, quant analyses, and what that analyses tell us, looking at data such as the US Purchasing Managers Index, such as the copper price, such as the Aussie dollar, US dollar cross rate, such as our measures of liquidity, the yield on the US Treasury 10 years should currently be 200 basis points, 2%, okay, not uh, you know, 0.85 or whatever the latest reading is. And what you're seeing is the very fact that bond yields are down at these levels is not because of yield curve control, because look at the Fed balance sheet. The Fed balance sheet is not changing its composition at all. There's no yield curve control going on in the US, despite what people claim. What's going on is the private sector is basically hungry for income. And so what they're doing is they're basically, a lot of institutions are writing puts and calls. They're effectively got short volatility or short gamma strategies on. And basically, they're looking in that income, hopefully praying that you don't get any spikes in volatility. As soon as you start to see volatility spiking, uh, you will see a rush for the door and people will close those trades and you're going to see a spike upwards in yields. And that's, in a way, what's playing out in the early days of November. That's what we're seeing. Interestingly, we saw that after the election in 2016. Same phenomenon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
So overall, it would suggest that uh, the the uh, the allocation is to be underweight uh, bonds, especially at the longer end of the curve, to be overweight equities and overweight uh, alternative assets like gold, Bitcoin. Uh, th- there's no question about that. That's exactly where you should be positioned. And you want to have an international flavor because we think that you're going to get some slippage in the dollar, not a dramatic one over the next 12 months, but you're going to get a slippage. Now, there's a chart that uh, that you can look at, which is looking at regional flows of liquidity uh, into uh, different currency areas. And we show that as a percentage of global liquidity. Now, what that data is illustrating is cross-border capital flows into Europe, into Asia and into the, the Americas. But let's say that's really the US. And if you look at that chart over time, what you find is there have been three periods of strong inflows into the dollar. The first of those was the mid-1980s when Japanese insurance companies were buying the U.S. Treasury market. I remember that. I was at San Umbrellas at the time, and there was a lot of demand coming through uh, from from Japanese insurers. The next period was basically the end of the 1990s after the Asian crisis or during the Asian crisis, where there was flight capital coming out of Asia into the safety of U.S. assets. That was the second one. The third episode, which is a bigger spike, occurred from about 2016, 2015, 2016 onwards. And it really coincided with two things, but it was about the demand for safe assets in the world economy. The first cause was Xi Jinping, Premier of China, went on an anti-corruption drive and forced the shadow banks to delever, particularly their foreign uh, borrowings. And what you saw was a lot of money moving back into the dollar at that phase. So if you look at the chart, you'll see an opposite movement in Asian uh, Asian flows at that time. U.S. goes up, Asia comes down. Second factor was you had a eurozone banking crisis in 2010-2012. Okay, Europe started to see big capital outflows at that time, and effectively, a lot of European banks were buying U.S. safe assets because the austerity driving Europe just created the supply. Uh, you know, bonds were just were not being issued through that period. So what you saw was a demand for U.S. safe assets. Consequently, you see the spike of money going into the dollar. And ever since the peak in 2016, 2017, it's progressively come down. It is still positive. Make no mistake, it's positive right now, but it's going negative. And it's going negative because you're going to start to see money flowing back into the euro area just by cyclical movements and effectively uh, the Asian numbers will, money will start to move to Asia, uh, you know, as effectively the world economy uh, revives next year. So ultimately, capital is going to start to leave the US and the dollar will weaken. And that's that's the backdrop as to why we think the dollar is going to be soft. And that's a great chart, by the way. I'm sure that we're going to have it up on the screen. Uh, you, you have another chart in your latest piece uh, about the asset allocation which is about the U.S. 10-year yield and the factor model, which I'm taking to be negative for uh, for bonds. Can you talk to that as well? Yeah, let, let me do that. I mean, I, I said a little bit about that a few moments ago, and that was really saying that if you look at a factor model, which includes, uh, it just effectively regresses uh, U.S. 10-year yields on four factors. Those four factors are the U.S. ISM index, purchasing managers index, in other words, uh, the uh, the copper price, the Aussie dollar, US dollar cross rate, and our measure of liquidity. And what you find is a very, very close correlation until effectively the start of this year, 
uh, where you see a breakout after the time of the COVID crisis and yields go sideways. Uh, but the factor model is saying yields should be rising. There's a V-shaped rebound going on and yields should not be uh, you know, 85 basis points right now. Uh, they should be over 200 basis points. There's a big gap to make up. And that is that is pressure on the bond market. That's what I'd be worried about. Now, I think the other thing to put in context, which, you know, there's a there's a slide I can talk to here, which is just to go back to what happened in uh, in March, April and to really to emphasize the fact of how much of a sell off there was on Wall Street and how much investors really panicked and got out. Now, the chart that I'm that I'm going to talk about is what we call risk positioning. And what this is about is looking at data on asset allocation within individual portfolios, but aggregated across the market. Now, we get this data from a number of sources, from custodians, from the stock exchanges, uh, from new issuance uh, supply, uh, data suppliers, etc. And what we can do is piece together the asset allocation of investors almost on a daily basis. Okay, There's a few days lag in this data, but we can get very close. It's very granular data. Now, what it shows is that there's normally... Uh, uh, an, an asset allocation, uh, which you can see on the diagram, which averages around the zero point. That's a mean. And then we see a range either side of that that goes because of the tram lines to minus 40 to plus 40, which represents two standard devi deviation moves of asset allocation, either downwards or upwards. That's inter-risk assets or outer-risk assets. So think of this as a straightforward allocations to equity. So if you're below the minus 40, you are below two standard deviations, uh, allocations, underweight in equities. OK, and if you're over 40, you're two standard deviations above normal in equity. And the long run average is zero. Now, what we see here is that in March or the end of March, uh, what was that reading? That reading basically went right down to about minus 90 on that index. OK, <laughs> I don't know how many standard deviations that is, but that's huge. That was the scale of the panic. No other market worldwide was as low as Wall Street. OK, Wall Street went down to levels not seen before. On that chart, I put a dotted line, which was the low for the 2008 GFC, which was about on this index, about minus 52. So we got right down to ridiculously low levels. One of our clients, a Boston based big wealth manager, said to, to us in the middle of April, 20% of their clients had sold every U.S. equity they owned. Right. Markets have bounced back from that. That was the, That's the reality. It got from being terrible to being a lot better. And so the markets rebound. So the U.S. market right now, as we speak, even after this little rally, on our reckoning, is about that zero point on the risk positioning scale. It's about neutrally positioned between safe assets and risk assets. Wall Street can keep going up. Other markets worldwide can keep going up. Equities look a decent asset environment uh, looking into 2021. Uh, obviously, markets don't go up in straight lines, but on any pullbacks, we'd be moving back in. Wow, yeah, that is, uh, that's very, uh, very good data to have, Michael. I really appreciate that. And, you know, so I think that sort of rounds out what I'm thinking about talking about with regard to asset allocation. I, I want to get back to that one question that I flagged earlier about uh, deepening. Um, that that is, is is that this decoupling that we're talking about between the United States and China, 
And then you have simultaneously using the Chinese yuan as an umbrella under which to, uh, you know, all the other Asian currencies to fall. What does that mean in terms of how they're going to interact with one another going forward as the U.S. and China decouple? I think it's a very difficult question. Uh, and I think that, you know, what what you're likely to see is presumably a policy uh, that will be carried on by a Biden administration that will be that will look not dissimilar to what the Trump administration did. This is a theme. And this theme has been going on for some time about the U.S. effectively pulling back from international. Uh, and this is maybe part of a, let's say, a longer term wave that you see in U.S. history. They're now more domestic than they are international. So I think one's got to think about how that how the world looks in that environment. And in that environment, it's kind of like a containment policy. So I think that what the U.S. will want is some strategic hubs, some close strategic allies, which may be Japan, Korea uh, within the region. So those economies may get uh, a boost rather like Germany did, if you like, uh, in the in the Cold War environment against the Soviets. That may well be the case. But I think that what you've broadly got is a situation where, as I you know, repeat, China needs America much more than America needs China. And China is in a very difficult situation. China is going to have to go for uh, this Belt and Road Initiative idea. It's going to have to become more domestic. They already flagged that. It's going to be very difficult for China to actually export a lot. It's going to be very difficult for China to actually import a lot. They've still got to get all their energy out of the Middle East, which now looks a very fraught area. Uh, and uh, those shipping lines are unprotected. Okay, It's a haven for terrorism. Okay, So uh, without American support, China is, is really in a very difficult situation. Uh, and I think that, you know, the fact is that in the longer term, the dollar will prevail. That doesn't mean to say that China's not going to try and, uh, you know, is not, is not going to, uh, you know, uh, not try and get the yuan stronger and more widely used. They will. And China's got a, is in a position where they can do that. And you look back to the history of how the dollar became the preeminent currency worldwide. How did it displace sterling? It basically did that through trade credit. And after World War One uh, or during World War One. The Brits said uh, to uh, to the world, we're not going to you know, transact through US, UK banks uh, now because we're fighting a war. So the US took over. And what you saw initially was effectively trade, trade credit uh, being the, the key way that the dollar became the preeminent currency. Uh, dollar trade credit was, was the major vehicle. And that's what China needs to do. It needs to develop a trade credit system in the yuan. So people that need Chinese goods uh, will have to pay for them in yuan. Chinese banks can fulfill that. Second thing they need is they basically need to open up their bond market. That's happening. Uh, it's the financialization of China that's key. And thirdly, they need a digital yuan, essentially mm. to allow peer-to-peer -peer transfers. They're getting on with that. So the three factors they need to do are starting to move. So the yuan will be a challenger. The dollar needs to think about that, but the dollar is in a preeminent place. So it's very difficult to, to knock off. But that does not mean that the dollar cannot be a weaker currency in the near term. There are two different things. The dominance of use of the dollar, which is unchallenged, I think, and the value of the dollar, which is a separate question. If you want to get more dollar usage, you've got to get the dollar you know, progressively down. That will encourage people to use it and borrow it. Yeah, you know, um, you mentioned the Biden administration there. Uh, obviously, that presupposes that uh, you know, there's not going to be any sort of turnover of what we now consider the, the vote. 
I was noticing that in the Biden administration, they were talking up uh, Lael Brainerd as a potential Treasury secretary. And she's well noted to be a, a, a hawk on China. She's actually said in the past in meetings within when she was under the Obama administration that she wanted to uh, call China a, tr a currency manipulator. Do you see the Biden administration um, uh, continue, you did say that you can, you see them continuing to, uh, you know, play tough with China, but how tough do you think that they will be? And what's that going to do with regard to the value of the U.S. dollar and the value of the yuan? Well, I think it's, it's difficult for me not sitting in the U.S. to actually make those sort of pronouncements. But I, but I would, I would suggest that what you're going to see, as I said, is a continuation of the policy themes that, uh, that, that existed or started under the Trump administration. Uh, there was a sudden wake-up uh, that China was in, uh, had exploited its privileged position, and the U.S. needed to basically redraw the lines. And I think that's been done. Now, uh, if you want to challenge the yuan, you want to challenge China, uh, and you want to get more people using the dollar and not the yuan, you basically want to allow the dollar to fall in value. You want to increase the supply. More people have got to use it. More people have got to borrow it. And the reality is, or the hard reality is, and we saw that at the time of the GFC in 2008, if you get a lot of foreign borrowers borrowing dollars, and then suddenly that dollar liquidity disappears, America is in an incredibly strong position. Okay, right. Uh, you know, who does it give its swap lines to? And the new sort of diplomacy worldwide is, you know, what, what America has very cleverly done in the last decade is to basically de-emphasize the euro dollar markets and replace that with swap lines that are directed government to government. Um, and that's how they can control the dollar system uh, when they need to. Very, very clever tactics. Uh, in the long term, the dollar will prevail. But as I say, it doesn't mean to say the dollar can't fall near term. You know, Michael, th this is a whole another discussion for another time, the whole uh, geopolitical part. I really we've opened up a can of worms that I hope that we can continue in our next conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, it's been very enlightening on asset allocation, and I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out in 2021. Great, Ed. Been a great pleasure. Thanks again. Thanks for your time. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com.